0: Welcome to the Diversity at Work podcast, where we unpack what it's really going to take to close the gender gap in the workplace. Here is your host, leadership coach and diversity consultant, Andrea Jansen. This episode of the Diversity at Work podcast is brought to you by Ambitious Everyday. It is like having your very own leadership coach in the form of a journal to help you focus and take action towards your goals. It is the exact same process that I take all of my coaching clients through, turned into a journal. If you're wondering what it's like to work with a leadership coach, this is the best way to try it out. It is only $30 and it absolutely works. So you can get yours on my website. It is ambitiontheory.ca. Hello, it is Andrea Jansen here and we are celebrating something very special today. It is the one-year anniversary of the Diversity at Work podcast. We've spent a full year interviewing thought leaders in the diversity and inclusion space, and in honor of that, we are going to be releasing our most popular episodes over the next few weeks. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Diversity at Work podcast. I am your host, Andrea Jansen. On today's episode, I sat down and had a talk with Fotini Iconomopoulos. She is an MBA professor, a keynote speaker, a negotiations expert, and a soon-to-be published author. And her job is literally to help people get what they want. And that's what we talked about. We talked about how you can get what you want at work. So let's dive into the interview.
1: So hi, Sputini. Thank you so much for coming on the Diversity at Work podcast. I would love it if you could introduce yourself and tell everybody listening what you do.
2: Well, my name is Fotini Iconomopoulos, and I uh, I'm a negotiation expert, a, a consultant, which means very little to most people. But what it means is I get to go into all sorts of companies and either train their teams on how to be better negotiators, so a lot of the folks that have to negotiate with the world's largest retailers will call will call me for help and sometimes I'll be working on their real life negotiations as well so if they're dealing with a really big negotiation with Costco or Walmart or a bank or an airline they'll call me in and ask for my assistance and we'll sit in a war room and we'll hash out how to best prepare for this particular situation what to say when to say it all that kind of fun stuff Uh, but these days most of my time is spent doing um keynote addresses and speaking to all sorts of really cool and interesting groups of people and then giving them tips and tricks on how to handle everyday negotiations, which I think are surrounding us all the time.
1: I love it. So I want to hear, tell everybody how I heard about you. So I found you on LinkedIn. Um, We both went to the same school, Schulich, for our MBAs and i just thought this message that you're sharing especially with women because i know you've done a lot of talks with women's groups lately about negotiation because it's such an important skill for people to have but i would love it if you could take us back a little bit before you became an mba professor before you were a keynote speaker and an expert negotiator uh, what was life like for you (laughs)
2: So uh, anybody who's creeped me online will see that my profile starts with that I was nicknamed the negotiator as a child, because that's a true story. So when I grew up, it was in a family just like my big fat Greek wedding, and I had to negotiate my way out of everything. Negotiate my way out of the house, away to university, uh, moving out of the parents' house, all that kind of stuff. So everything from prom dates to um, living on my own. And then I... Ended up getting my MBA right away. I started a business actually before that with my family. So we ran a leather and fur boutique back home in Niagara. Um, so I was negotiating with suppliers and stuff on a regular basis. And then I went and got my education and I started working for L'Oreal. Um, and when I was working for L'Oreal, my job was to negotiate with the Walmart buyers every day and making sure that they you know, boosted our sales and paid attention to our products and so on. And then I became the Walmart expert and I got poached by another company, a food company. And while I was there doing more or less the same job, um, a consulting firm was hired to train us on how to be better negotiators. Basically, how do you handle those tough negotiations with the Walmarts of the world? And by the end of that workshop, I'd done really well. And my facilitator had said, hey, uh, you should be doing what we do. And I was like, yeah, sure, someday when I've got more experience, because at that point, I was still in my 20s. And he said, no, seriously. Um, And after a year, I decided to finally join them. And I spent the next five years basically crisscrossing the globe, spending most of my time in the US with the larger clients, um, training people from all walks of life and all industries on how to be better negotiators, running these workshops. And then it was the clients who said, "I'm so glad that you trained our team, but we have a billion dollars on the line or we have a hundred million on the line or we have this really intense negotiation coming up, we need an expert to help us through it." So then it kind of evolved into this consulting on the real world problems. And then when I decided that that consulting firm wasn't for me anymore, I quit my job without a plan. But I knew I had lots of clients along the way who had said, hey, um, you know, we want to be your first call whenever you're ready to quit. Uh, And it just didn't feel like a right fit anywhere. But then so many of the clients are going, when are you going to come back and help us? Or when can you come help me with my issue or my team? And I was like, well, I don't work for the consulting firm anymore. And they said, well, we didn't hire the consulting firm. We hired you. We hired Fotini. And so this business was kind of born and then it was, oh, our women's group is having an event. Can you come speak to us? Because we don't have enough female role models doing the types of things that you do. And lots of women were coming up to me before, after, and during the programs that I was running, asking me for more specific advice too on, you know, how did you get these men to listen to you? How did you get them to put down their phones? How do you get people to pay attention to you when you're the youngest in the room? And I started to dig in even deeper on some of the things that I was practicing. I didn't know what I was doing at the time. I just knew that it was working. And then when I started looking at the research behind it, I found it even more fascinating. Eventually, that led to just somebody from the university noticing me on LinkedIn, exactly like you did, and going, hey, would you want to come back and teach? Um, and I, I love it. I really do love empowering as many people as I can. So whether it's in the in the MBA classroom, whether it's in a keynote audience, whether it's on Instagram live Q&As or podcasts it all gives me such joy to help people get what they want.
1: I love it so I have one question and something you said at the beginning of your story as you said you were in your 20s and this company said hey we need you you want to do you want to come work with us and your reaction was oh I'm only in my 20s I'm not ready so I want to know about the personal growth work you had to do so that you were able to step into this role and own it and kill it and kind of Use it as a stepping stone to where you are today. So
2: for me, it was full on imposter syndrome, um, which I advocate against (laughs) today. So it was one of those things where all of the the people, I was always the youngest at the table, anywhere I went, whether whether it was my own business, whether it was in the corporate world, whether I was the youngest person calling on Walmart, whether I was the youngest person in that training room and so on. Um, And I've always held my own. So I was pretty confident like that I had exceeded expectations but when I met these guys who were 10 to 15 years older than me and they were running these workshops for what they were saying were executives all over the world I was like what executive is going to listen to me when you know these other guys are there in the mix because I'd already been exposed to so much bias age gender cultural whatever Um, and it wasn't like that that's facilitator had to ask me three times um we had a coaching call a month after that workshop was over and he said did you think about what I told you about about you know doing what we do and I said yeah sure someday when I have more experience and then a month later we had another coaching call he said hey did you think about what I told you I'm going to set up this meeting with my boss for you um and it wasn't really until I I went through that interview process where it was four Guys who were much older than me, who were quite senior, one of whom was the CEO of the company. And I went, wait a second. If they're willing to listen to me, clearly somebody else is willing to do the same thing. Um, and I had always managed to stand out in a crowd. I was always outspoken, but I was always very cautious of stepping outside of my lane. And I think what I went through with that particular company when they were kind of throwing me off the deep end, I've been I've been really fortunate in my life to have people who really would just throw me in in, and it's a sink or swim mentality like when i started a business when with my dad um with my both of my parents but my my dad said to me one day you need to quit your job at the time i was working for a a leather store in the local shopping mall and i said why and he said because next month we're opening up our own store i said what do you know about leather and he said nothing i know i have a smart kid though and that's enough (laughs) so it was kind of like family mortgage on the line no pressure there um and then I had people, colleagues at the consulting firm who would sign me up for workshops or sell me to a client. And I'd be going, wait, 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 how are we going to do this? They're like, you're fine. Um, So I think I just surrounded myself with enough people who would stretch me and who would push me outside of those comfort zones that I started to recognize, oh, I can do this. Like, I still remember my very first workshop on my own, because I had to shadow the other guys for a while while I, while I was going through my training. But I remember being in St. Louis at, um, at a Marriott hotel and it was an oil and gas company, seven men and one woman. And when I walked up to the group and I introduced myself, they were, they were not impressed. They clearly thought I worked for the hotel. They had some not some not so nice comments under their breath. Um, I, those are more appropriate to share over a cocktail. Um, and I remember thinking, I overcame that. By the end of that week, these people were insisting on driving me to the airport instead of letting me take a taxi. And they have stayed in touch. And they're, they're really lovely, nice people. But if I could convert those guys, then I felt like, oh, I've got this under my belt. I can handle any asshole that comes my way. My way. Um, I think that was really an eye-opener for me. And then it just continued to evolve from there. So I find myself reflecting on a lot of those past victories, if you want to call it that, and still pushing myself out of my comfort zone. Sometimes when I I find myself getting a little too complacent. I think the people I surround myself with, my friends and my critics are the ones that again, push me a little bit further. So I think one of the things that's allowed me to grow is just having a pretty freaking awesome support network that I didn't realize I was leaning on for support. Um, And so they, they push me constantly.
1: So I love the idea that you had these critics who right away, like they thought you worked at the hotel, right? So that's something pretty big to overcome in the moment. So let's go back. How did you, on that day, right? In that moment, like you're standing at the front, they think you're there to take lunch orders. What did you do?
2: (laughs) You have an internal, oh shit moment. (laughs) And then you basically power through and you go, I don't have a choice but to look the part and to look like I'm unfazed by this. Because like I said, they had some colorful language. They were very forthcoming about their feelings. I even had one guy once say to me, what are you going to teach me little girl? So when that, that word comes out of their mouth, you could have this deer in the headlights moment where you look like, where they look like, they know I've got her and now I can abuse her for the rest of our time together. Or you just fake it until you make it or what I like to think of Amy Cuddy's words are fake it till you become it and I felt like I just had to fake it till I made it uh, through this one conflict until the next one and the next one and the next one and every time you make it over the hump of one of those moments it gives you the bravado to be able to handle the next one and the one that comes after that so really it is going I talk about the mental pause button so I press my mental pause button and went I can handle this I can do this. I'm not going to let them rattle me. And it's almost like a, it's almost like a rebellious thing. Like, oh no, you're not going to push me down. You're not going to tell me what to do. Like my principles kind of go into full gear and I'm like, no, I'm not going to be belittled just because I'm a woman or because I'm young or any of those things. It's like that sense of injustice just makes me red in the face and I I power through. But it really is that moment of okay, I'm scared out of my mind, I don't know what's gonna come out of my mouth, but I need to act the part if they're gonna get in line with what I'm gonna do next. And and that principle really, I think, overrides everything else for me in those moments.
1: That's really cool. And so what is it like, like how, what does it feel like when you can see the people shifting going from, I'm not sure if I'm gonna learn anything to, oh my goodness, I'm taking notes, like she knows what she's doing.
2: I mean, that's super empowering. So the, the minute you can see them, like they're still angry with you. Like, don't get me wrong. They're still not happy about being there. But the second you see them putting a pen to paper, it's encouraging. But I still don't know for certain, are they writing? Like one guy told me, I was writing everything down that I hated about you, <laughs> that I was going to complain to my manager about. But in that moment, I didn't know it. So I just decided to perceive it as, okay, he's taking notes. So he's engaged. Even if he's writing down all the things that I'm doing wrong, the fact of the matter is he's paying attention and that should be enough to make us, to give us the energy to keep going. The fact that they are paying attention. And I think I've really changed my attitude about criticism and stuff like that as well. Cause if you're, you know, I was always cautious about, putting myself out there on Twitter or LinkedIn or being opinionated or becoming a public profile. I really wasn't fond of the spotlight for that reason because it just attracts trolls. I mean, in our social media day and age, it's worse than ever. I think this this career would have been much easier for me 20 years ago, but then maybe you wouldn't have discovered me on LinkedIn 20 years ago. Um, So there's the pros and the cons, but I feel like the pros outweigh the cons because the truth of the matter is, if you're attracting trolls, it's because you're doing something that they're noticing. And if you're doing something that they're noticing, you're ruffling their feathers. And that can't be a bad thing in my opinion.
1: Oh my goodness, I totally 100% agree, especially when it comes to gender equality at work. So let's kind of shift towards that. And I wanna talk about the gender pay gap, specifically from like your perspective when it comes to negotiation. So how does it affect, how does it show up? How does it affect um, women in the workplace? Like, why does it exist? Just from that perspective of negotiation and how men and women negotiate.
2: So there's been a bit of an evolution. Um, There's some really great research around women in negotiation and and a book called, um, I'm trying to think of the name now, Linda Babcock wrote it. Women Don't Ask was the name of the book. And that was an eye opener for me. So she did some research back in 2001. So it's a little out of date now. But back then, she found that only 7% of women negotiated their first salary coming out of school and 57% of men did. And that was shocking to me because I'd always negotiated everything. I don't know if it was just that my dad was such a super aggressive negotiator where he negotiated everything that by osmosis, I thought, oh, that's the example for everybody, not just for men. Um, So reading that, I was a bit startled and I thought, okay, I've seen more recent research that says we're closing that, that more women are asking. And then I go into the MBA classroom And almost all of the time I have office hours, once a week I have to dedicate an hour of office hours for students to come see me. It's almost always women who come see me and it's always about salary negotiations because these MBA students are about to negotiate their job offers and so on. And the the frequent feedback that I hear is, I'm scared to, what if they rescind the offer? And those fears are legitimate because women are treated differently in negotiation. I see it in research all the time. Me asking for something doesn't come across or isn't received the same way as a male with the same profile asking for something. I've dealt with it in my professional life. I've been paid less than peers that I shouldn't have been paid less than. I've raised it and been told, oh, Fotini, you're so... Uh, you 're so obsessed with money, and i 'm like, well, if you paid me what you 're supposed to, then i wouldn 't have to raise it so frequently or i 'm i 'm so sick of hearing you talking about your salary okay well why don 't we put it where it 's supposed to be and and we'll we'll 'll we'll be able to put this to bed But then the second somebody else spoke up on my behalf, a male colleague all of a sudden, that problem went away, and I got a magic you know huge bump in my salary because the male raised it and it was okay for him to talk about it but when i raised it it wasn't okay for me to talk about it um so i see it anecdotally but i also see it in the research constantly there is a lot of gender bias that still exists um there's a fantastic tool called project implicit they have a website i want to say it's projectimplicit.com, but if you google it you can even test yourself for your own biases we have biases when we hear things like you know you hear the word doctor automatically most people's visual goes to a male in a white coat, not a female. And those are things that happen at a deep subconscious level. And it's because we don't have enough role models to normalize the fact that, oh, that can also be a female. Of course, it's normal for it to be a woman and not just a man. And so we don't have enough role models yet of women who are taking the lead and who are doing those negotiations. It's not been normalized yet. I think we have a lot more work to do. I think, you know, I joke about how, when responses to women negotiating i feel like sometimes it's are they are are they thinking wow you should be grateful that you get a vote why are you asking for so much more like are we still stuck in evolving from the 1950s instead of you know where we need to be today Um, but unfortunately the research is still there i think we are shifting but it's like at a snail's pace because until we get more and more women in these leadership roles and talking to us about how to do it it's still going to be really difficult for the men receiving those negotiations um to respond away and and it's actually not just men it's we as women look at women differently asking for things than we do as men so it doesn't matter who's receiving the message we're just not comfortable with women asking for what they deserve. Um, so my role and my job and my the pressure I put on myself is to give those tools to women to be able to do that, to give them the mindset, first of all, that they do deserve it, but also to give them some practical tools so that they're not perceived as bitchy, aggressive, all of those ugly words that come up when we talk about a female who owns what she deserves. So I talk about, you know, techniques around asking questions and language to use more specifically, behavioral things to do, just to smooth out some of the bumps in the road. It sucks that we need to, as women, think about things differently and go to those extra lengths and, and be so mindful about the words that we choose and so on. But I would rather take those opportunities to find the shortcuts than wait around for everybody else in society to evolve and be ready for that.
1: Okay, so what are some of the things, what are kind of three things that women can do? Because one thing I heard you say was kind of getting men on board and having that ally. Is that something that you recommend people do?
2: Yeah, it's so massive. So I think women in general need allies. I think those allies are more compelling when it's coming from a male voice. Because the way bias works is we, we seek others out who are like us, right? We're tribal. So we're looking for others who are similar to us. Those are the people that we like. And so if I'm a male, then I'm likely going to make my subconscious is going to like what other males say more than a female, unless I can find some other thing in common, right? So let's say, you know, I I meet a, a gentleman who went to Schulich and we start talking about Schulich. And now all of a sudden we have that bond in common. So maybe the bias starts to go away a little bit, even if he did have a female bias. But if he has a choice of connecting with the male person who went to the university or the female person who went to that same university at a subconscious level he's going to be more attracted to the person he's more similar to that's just the that's just the nature of bias so if you can find an ally whose messaging is going to be received a little bit easier than yours will be then that's fantastic i think that's the principles of persuasion at work as well is that it's what we call the social smell. If someone else says this person's great, then I guess I should believe that as well. Um, So the allies are a big thing. The other thing is um, I find that asking questions is a really great way to manage conflict and to, to deal with some of those issues. So if, for example, you find yourself in a position where you're not being paid what you should be, or you have an inkling that somebody else is getting paid more, I would start by asking a lot of questions, not in a defensive and attacking tone, but in a walk me through, what are the things that you're looking for for somebody to to achieve this level of salary or whatever it is? And if they start running down a list of characteristics and traits and so on, you've got two things going for you. One is you've got knowledge and knowledge is power. Two it's just come out of their mouths so they now feel more accountable to that list, so now you're using that knowledge, you go, "Great, here are the things that I've done that check off all of those boxes that you've just said to me now all of a sudden, they've dug themselves a hole, and it's really hard for them to get out of it. so asking questions is a really great way to do that. I mean, even in simple situations where you go, you know you could say the boss is never going to go for that, or the client is never going to go for that, and they're going to get super defensive but if what if you were to say how do you think the boss would feel about you know this result? Or how do you think the client would respond to this potential outcome? Now, all of a sudden, just in that form of a question, you're provoking their thinking without them feeling like they're being attacked. So there are some of these little tools that we can use to make the conversation a little bit easier. Um, so I'd say knowledge is power. Allies are really powerful as well. And just the behavioral element of going at it in an inquisitive and curious approach, as opposed to that attacking or defensive um, manner. I think those are really important things for women specifically.
1: So I'm really interested about be showing up as being curious because I've heard a lot of advice before about negotiation. It's like, oh, be prepared, know your numbers, like go all in. And this like idea of going in as being curious, it just seems like you don't need to prepare as much. Like how cuz I guess it's like the way society tells us is to be really prepared, write down the script, all of those things. Those are things that I was by I, I agree
2: with all of that. I I don't think there's a single thing wrong with what you said and I I always advocate for being prepared. What I'm okay. what I'm what I'm going in with with this curiosity is this, okay, I'm going to yes. go in and I'm going to know my numbers, I'm going to know my data when you're going in for a salary negotiation specifically. You need it's it's much easier if you have objective information. So I'm going to know what yes. you know similar people in my experience are getting and all that kind of stuff. But I'm going to go in there, and when they say no to me, because no is really just the start of a negotiation, not the end of it, I'm going to go in there with an attitude of curiosity. What's holding them back? Why would they say no right now? What information am I missing That uh, or what information are they missing, perhaps, that is holding them back from being able to grant me this thing that I want. So if you can park the defensiveness and then layer on the curiosity, I think that's what helps to move a conversation forward. But too often we get too entrenched in, but this is my way. This is my proposal. You should want to come to my proposal. But they're not going to want to do it just because you willed them to if you ask them a question, if you provoke their thinking, if you point out in the form of a question some of the things that they might be missing, now all of a sudden they're taking steps in your direction and they're doing it willingly, all because they're answering, they're talking without you forcing it down their throats. So I do think that we need to be more curious about what's going on in this person's head. I'm going to have prepared everything I possibly can. Have I considered? What they're thinking, what challenges they're facing, what problems I might be able to solve for them with my proposal and so on as well. I think we miss that curiosity because we get so embedded in our objectives, our you know um, preparation and so on. A crucial piece of that preparation is really understanding the other party.
1: So it's almost like show like know your stuff, do your numbers, have a goal, but then go in with curiosity. And I love how you said no is the start of the negotiation, because I know for myself or for so many people, when you hear no, you're like, oh, I tried, I'm just going to go back to work and just keep going where with where I'm going. But I love that idea of like leaning into the no and kind of being curious and moving forward and going from there. So thank you for sharing that. That is super powerful.
2: I think the no is an extremely powerful moment because if they say yes to your very first proposal, you might be going, damn, I should have gone for more (laughs) or I should have done something else. But if they say no, then that's not the end. It's your opportunity to go, why not? what, under what circumstances would this be possible? What do we need to change in order to make this possible? So even with my MBA students, if they're negotiating this job offer and they've tried everything they can, followed all the rules, they've made a fantastic script and they still get a no, that boss says, you know what, that's all, that's as much as we can afford to do. We can't do anything further than that. I always tell them, don't stop there. Set up your next negotiation okay, so when is the most appropriate time for us to, to look at this again? What do you need to see from me in order to get to that next hurdle of salary that I'm looking for and so on and so forth? By asking those questions and getting that information and that knowledge, six months from now, three months from now, two years from now, when you're going to revisit that exact negotiation again, you're armed with everything you need to get all the yeses that you need.
1: I love it. So it's almost like reframing it that the negotiation is a process. Whereas I think a lot of times we get stuck in the ideas that negotiation is going to happen. Oh, I booked a meeting with my boss. It's from 10 to 11. And that is my time for negotiation. But the reality is what you're saying is the better way is to be like, yeah, this negotiation, it might take six months, right? If you get that no, and then you ask that question, like when would be the time to the best time to reconnect? It's like six months later. And It's just so beautiful because you can still get what you want and it can be mutually beneficial for both parties.
2: Well, and here's the other kicker. It doesn't start at that 9 a.m. meeting. It starts way before that. So what have you done to plant the seeds? What have you done to influence their thinking? What have you done in advance of that negotiation so that you have prepared both yourself and their mindset to want to do all of those things for you? Too often I think people wait until the last minute to have the negotiation, especially when it's like, you know, it's personal evaluation time. It's the end of the year when everyone has their evaluations and they're told their, you know, their raises or what their next move is going to be next year and so on. The decisions for that meeting have been made a couple of months in advance. A bunch of senior executives have been in an off-site retreat talking about all their high potential employees and who's going to go where and what are the budgets like for next year and so on. All they're doing is delivering the message at that point. There's no room for negotiation or very little of it. So you need to start planting the seeds of hey, here's what I'm looking forward to next year. Here are my expectations based on what I've accomplished so much this year once we meet together and so on in at the personal evaluation time. You need to plant those seeds way before the negotiation actually starts. So the negotiation happens leading up to that moment, that, that let's call it that appointment, and it continues long after it's over because you're setting up the next one.
1: Okay, so can you give us some examples of because you talked a little bit before about like, you said early when you were introducing yourself that you help people like embrace negotiations on a daily basis. So can you give some ideas on how we can embrace that mindset and just be reminded that these things take time, like you need to plant the seeds, you need to have that agenda, you need to have those goals. So how can we go about kind of changing that, okay, my negotiation for my salary is on performance review day, it's always in December how can we like shift our mindset so that we're looking at it as like an ongoing relationship Well, I think
2: when it comes to anything for personal improvement and personal development, if you're always kind of, if you're somebody like me and and you're interested in that kind of stuff, it's what can I do to continuously improve? Most people will do something like set goals. So if you set a goal for yourself that, you know, by the beginning of 2020, I want to have this much of a salary. So that means at the beginning of 2019, or maybe even before that, you should be thinking, what are the steps that I need to do? What is the information I need to collect? Who do I need to talk to about achieving those things and understanding from each HR's perspective or my hiring manager's perspective and so on, what that's going to take so that you can put all of those things in place. So I think that's the preparation bit of it is thinking in advance, you know, what are my goals? What am I trying to accomplish here? And even if it's something as simple as buying a car, um, you know, it's, it's, what is the, what is the price that I want to pay for this car? Okay. If I know I want a car that's going to cost me $20,000, then I'm going to be thinking, is it better to get it at the beginning of the year or the end of the year at the beginning of the month or the end of the month, those things make an impact too. Cause at the end of the year, uh, dealerships are trying to clear out this year's models to make room for next year's models. You're going to get a better deal. So if you can be thinking in advance about some of these things, that's super helpful. But then the other thing is just reminding yourself that, you negotiate every single day. If you are trying to fight for space on public transit, that's a negotiation. It's usually one that doesn't require much talking. It's all body language, but you're negotiating for your personal space. If you go and walk a dog, you are negotiating with them to follow your rules and obey what you need them to do. That's a negotiation. What you're doing affects what they do and so on. So You're practicing this stuff constantly. Anybody who spends time around children, I guarantee you, you are negotiating all the freaking time. <laughs> um, and people ask me, you know, how do I get practice? And I'm like, start babysitting because kids are negotiating for everything and your attention and every piece of dessert and every toy and everything else like that. So you're negotiating with them for, you know, good behavior and stuff like that too. And so if you can get it in your head that, oh, actually I do negotiate. I do this all the time. I stand up for myself all the time. I have conversations with people all the time. I prevent arguments from happening. All the time, I'm negotiating with my partner at home about who's going to empty the dishwasher, who's going to take out the garbage. Those are negotiations. So if you can start to tally up all of those circumstances that you're actually practicing your negotiation skills every day, hopefully that gives you the confidence to go, okay, when it is time for higher stakes stuff, when it's time to go talk to the boss or this new client and so on, I got this because I know I do this all the time. I know I get people's respect. I know I know how to have a conversation without escalating it. Those are the things that I think can give everybody courage and confidence to be able to carry out those higher stake scenarios.
1: I love it. So it's almost like taking that reflection and being like, "Where did I negotiate today? How did I advocate for myself?" and just reminding yourself that you're capable and that you can do it.
2: Yeah, I mean, when you when I look at, I, I spend a lot of time focusing on what professional athletes and stuff like that do, and I really love working with former athletes because even in the business world, they're going to look at what I call their game tapes and go what can I do better? Or what did I do well? Like if they're, you know, if they're on the basketball court and they're looking at game tapes, they're going to go, Oh, that's where my hand moved a certain way. I need to correct that for next time. Or that's why that worked. So that's a play I want to repeat. So if we can kind of have that objective viewpoint again, instead of just beating ourselves up to go, Oh, I did that so terribly. I don't want to do that ever again. It's going, what can I do to make it better next time? Um, And Athletes are also, when they're in the, the locker rooms and stuff like that, and they're getting ready to go out there for a big championship game, one of the things that studies show us that is really helpful is when they reflect on previous victories, It's like going, guys, you remember that last Super Bowl championship? How amazing was that? We did so much incredible stuff then. Let's go out there and do this again. That gives you the confidence. When you reflect on those those previous victories, it really does change your mindset and and convince you that you are capable of accomplishing those things again. It puts you in a more optimistic headspace. And we know that from negotiation research that a, a more aspirational or optimistic headspace gets you much better results so what can you do to reflect on something you're really proud of and then that'll that going in with that mindset will give you a much better response when you go in for the the new negotiation that you're facing
1: oh i love that that is super powerful so you go back you kind of like build yourself up and kind of take everything that you've brought to the table and everything that you've done really well, and then just start from there. And it's almost like you're building up from a high place versus starting from a negative place.
2: Right. And I, and one of the practical ways to do that is, um, I always tell people I keep a feel good folder. So every time I get a compliment, every time I get a testimonial, every time sends me, someone sends me an accolade of some kind, usually it's like email and so on. Um, I put it in an email folder. That's my feel good folder. And so when I'm having a bad day or I'm getting ready for something, I can reflect on that folder and go, you know what, the last time I did a talk like this, it helped a lot of people. I know it can help people again, so I'm gonna do a great job at this. For those of you who are in the corporate world, um, it's a great tool to have before you go in for your next evaluation To have put all of your positive notes and accolades and accomplishments in one spot so that when it's time to fill out your personal evaluation, you go, oh, here's all the really cool stuff I've done this year. It's all here saved in one spot. If I need to go in and now negotiate for a promotion or a salary increase, here's all of the objective information that came from other people that shows what a great job I am doing.
1: Oh my goodness. So that's amazing. So I love to tell everybody to take action because I'm all about taking action and doing something um, within the next 24 hours after they've listened to this podcast and learned all these amazing skills from you. So what would be like the number one first step that people can do if they want to kind of hone in on their negotiation skills and work on them?
2: I would say go out there and negotiate something. So whether you're going to a market, whether you're going to a car dealership, just go out there and do a little bit of practice. Doesn't mean you have to go buy a car, (laughs) but, and you don't have to feel guilty either about not buying a car if you have this negotiation, because if you had a really positive experience, then you 're probably going to tell somebody else about it, and they might go and buy a car and that this you know salesperson might get a referral out of it, but even if you 're going to a retail store, try negotiating something on top of that. Can you get a warranty? Can you get an add on Can you get a freebie of some kind? Just getting that the attitude of asking for something. Um, If they can't do it, then they won't, they're not going to lose, they're not going to do something that's going to force them to lose their jobs, they're going to do something in the realm of possibility. So why not scope out what the realm of possibility is. So just go out there and practice, try it somewhere. There's lots of opportunities to practice when you're checking in a hotel, ask for an upgrade. When you're uh, going to a market, ask if they can do any better on the price or how much better they can do on the price. Um, You know, those are little things that I think go a really long way in building your confidence.
1: I love it. Thank you for that. So if people want to learn more about you, how do they find you?
2: Well, I'm in the process of rebuilding a website. So it's not the best place to find me at the moment. But um, LinkedIn and Instagram are kind of the tools that I use most. I'm also on Twitter. Um, but on LinkedIn, I'm always posting uh, about events and workshops and things like that that I'm running. I'm sharing nuggets of information that I think are really useful that I think others might find useful as well. On Instagram, I'm doing live Q&As all the time. And I save those in my stories. So you can see p- previous questions that I've answered. And on a October 24th, I am actually running a public workshop. Uh, It's going to be a one-day workshop on negotiation skills of all kinds. So you can also register for that. Um, If you go to Eventbrite, the the name of the event is called Negotiating with Confidence. Again, the link is in my my bio, both on uh, LinkedIn and on Instagram as well.
1: So what's your Instagram handle?
2: It's at Fotini Icon. So F-O-T-I-N-I-I-C-O-N.
1: Okay, so I will put this in the show notes, and I will p- also put a link to your LinkedIn, and I'll put a link to the event in the show notes so people can check it out if they're in Toronto. Uh, so thank you so much, Fotini. This was such a great conversation. I learned a lot, and I think that my audience will learn a lot as well. And I really love that action of negotiating every day, just taking that opportunity to try and practice and build your confidence. So I think that's really powerful because you always wait for the big opportunity and then we get all scared and nervous but if we're negotiating all the time then the big ones are less scary so thank yeah. you for that
2: and it's so easy like call up your your cell phone provider and ask what they can do to give you a better deal you will get something i can guarantee it that's a great place to
0: to start in a low stakes scenario
1: awesome well thank you so much, Fotini.
0: my pleasure Hi there. Before you go, I was wondering if I could ask you a huge favor. Can you click on iTunes and give the podcast a five-star review and also a comment? This would mean the world to me. It also helps us to spread the word about the podcast and attract higher profile guests. We want to be able to deliver thought leadership around diversity, inclusion, every single week and having more reviews on iTunes will help us to do that and help us to keep the show going for free for you. So please head to iTunes right now. Give us a five-star review and leave us a comment. Thanks so much.